I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Episode 4 of Atomic Dreamland. Hedley Marston didn't go public with his findings. If he had, he would have endangered the Australian government's relationship with Britain, especially in the area of atomic cooperation, which was now finally bearing fruit. After some prodding, Britain had agreed to provide Australia with technology for the peaceful applications of atomic energy. In fact, at Lucas Heights on the outskirts of Sydney, work had just begun on an atomic research facility. This, you know, is a very historic occasion for Australia. Indeed, it's an historic occasion in the world. Centrepiece was a research reactor provided by Britain and paid for in part with Australian uranium. The facility's purpose included research into medical and industrial uses of atomic energy and the training of scientists and technicians to staff atomic power stations of the future. The driving force of the newly formed Australian Atomic Energy Commission was Philip Baxter. During the war, he led a British team working on the Allied Atomic Bomb Project. In 1950, he migrated to Australia to take up a university posting, and with Menzies' backing, he would help chart a dramatic new and controversial course for Australia's scientific development. His vision of an Australia that's not just the one we know now, but he had this vision that uh, there's going to be a population of the interior of Australia built up by nuclear technology. Brian Martin, author of Nuclear Nights. So he's going to have all these nuclear power plants. He was expecting the equivalent of 44 large nuclear power plants by the year 2000. And therefore, using some of this power to irrigate the interior, create new settlements, and obviously he'd have the idea, well, we'll have nuclear weapons too, and we'll have this vast new population, and we'll be one of the great powers in the world. Sir Philip Baxter had been very actively involved in the British program. He built the plant and managed the plant that enriched uranium for the British weapons program. And he came out here and made it very clear that he felt Australia should develop nuclear weapons. With his rare mix of scientific and political acumen, Baxter became a key advisor on nuclear issues 
to the Australian Prime Minister's Defence Committee, and for the armed forces which were grappling with the imponderables of atomic warfare, Baxter had a clear message. Well, I'm horrified by war at all. I don't like war, I'm not a warmonger in any sense, but if you are going to defend yourself in a country where the enemy will undoubtedly outnumber you by 10 to 1, then in my view it's wicked to send young men and young women out to fight armed with archaic weapons and inadequate training to be slaughtered in the field. In a situation where what is at stake is survival, any method is justified in my view. Baxter's ideas found support within both the Defence Forces and the government. Senator John Gorton, an ex-World War II fighter pilot, called for a nuclear-armed Australia, rather than place its trust in the deterrence held by Britain and the United States. He took to the floor of the Senate and argued that Australia should have its own nuclear weapons, its own rockets and missiles to deliver those nuclear weapons, and asked the question, putting an Aussie twist on uh, French thinking at the time, asked, would the U.S. sacrifice San Francisco for Sydney? He doubted that. In early 1958, during the visit to Australia of British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, Menzies agreed to explore the possibility of arming the nation with atomic weapons. I'm very glad indeed to be here today on a visit to Australia. In preparation, the Prime Minister's Defence Committee met at Victoria Barracks in Melbourne. Two options were on the agenda. The first, the transfer of British atomic weapons to Australia. The second was an extraordinary proposal from the Chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, Philip Baxter. Well, Baxter is a brilliant and crafty fellow. Political scientist, Jim Walsh. And he recognised that Macmillan's visit coming to Australia represented a golden political opportunity to advance his agenda and the agenda of the uh, Australian Atomic Energy Commission. And his proposal was one that was intended to both pull in the British and pull up the Australians to the point where they would collectively be involved in a nuclear weapons program. Baxter wanted Britain to help fund and build a nuclear reactor near Mount Isa in Queensland, close to the new Mary Kathleen uranium mine. The plant would be similar in design to the world's first power reactor, which had recently opened at Calder Hall in Britain. Fueled with natural uranium, it would provide power for Australian industry, and its byproduct plutonium would be exported to Britain for her weapons program. Importantly, Australia would also be able to use the plutonium to make its own atomic weapons, which Baxter argued was well within the nation's capability. The Defence Committee believed that Baxter's proposal had important defence significance. Now there is a debate, and obviously Baxter wants to pursue both options, but given that Macmillan is likely to defend the arrangements with the United States, the Chiefs of Staff successfully argue that we will talk to Macmillan about the acquisition of British atomic weapons. Menzies starts out, and I must say he starts out with a sort of soft approach. He says, well, I don't know how you feel about it. I sort of have my own personal qualms about this, but how would you feel if Australia got nuclear weapons? Maybe, maybe you could transfer us nuclear weapons. 
You know I'm getting an awful lot of pressure from my Atomic Energy Authority on this. Uh, we're not ready to do it today, but, but what do you think about it? And having gotten that sort of soft request, Macmillan followed in kind and said, well, I'm not sure we can really do that. You know, the Americans are quite difficult about this. This is a very sensitive time. They're thinking about revising the McMahon Act, the McMahon Act which, which imposed these restrictions on the transfer of nuclear technology. It looks like we're going to get a change in that law that will open things up so that we can get greater access to nuclear weapons. But the most that's given at this point by the British is a commitment to talk about nuclear strategy. No information about nuclear weapons, no technical information, no nuclear weapons transfer outright. Despite its unwavering assistance to Britain's atomic program, Australia was still out in the cold. Soon after, Macmillan announced that Britain's relationship with America had improved and she would now conduct most of her atomic testing in the United States. Britain, of course, got their bomb. They also got what they wanted and joined back with the Americans and started testing at Nevada. Alan Parkinson was the Commonwealth representative on the Maralinga Rehabilitation Project. And what did Australia get? Hundreds of square kilometres of plutonium-contaminated land, which they still have, but no bomb. Crazy. Adding insult to injury, the Joint Missile Project was soon in crisis. By the 1960s, Australia had invested heavily in the development of nuclear-capable delivery systems, expecting Britain inevitably to supply the warheads. Australia's defence forces were especially interested in the Bloodhound Mark III ground-to-air missile. And so they actually purchased that weapon. Uh, purchased a nuclear-capable weapon. And it was the British understanding, the British documents show, that in purchasing this missile, they would also be able to get the warheads to fit on that missile. Now, as it turns out, for reasons completely unrelated to anything having to do with security, the Bloodhound program was canceled. The British Treasury put it on its hit list and canceled the program before any of the nuclear version were transferred to Australia. Soon after, Britain axed the Blue Streak nuclear-armed ballistic missile which Australia had also helped fund. In the end, the Empire Atomic Program had proven little more than a pipe dream. Hundreds of millions of pounds were spent at Woomera, yet none of the weapons developed there were ever used for the defence of Australia. It's ironic, really, that a project that was conceived as being you know, a joint project between equals, in fact, as things worked out, exposed that Australia in this respect was merely a client state of Britain's. Author of Fire Across the Desert, Peter Morton. It did what was required, it built the facilities that were required, um, it put the manpower, the energy, the money into activities that basically benefited Britain and nobody else um, and, um, and was happy to do it. So it really is, I suppose, an expose of the true nature of the relationship between the two countries. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. By the early 1960s, Britain's commitment to defending Australia from its base in Malaya was waning. And with nuclear weapons likely to spread to Southeast Asia in the near future, defence became a major election issue in Australia. The real issues in defence are these. Have we got the planes, the ships, the men and the equipment to repel aggression? The Labour opposition questioned the nation's ability to hold back invasion forces from China or Indonesia. Indeed, under President Sukarno, Indonesia was flirting with both the Soviets and Communist China. Of 600 warplanes, Indonesia has three squadrons of bombers, one of which can carry a nuclear bomb from Jakarta to any Australian capital city. Facing growing public concern, the Menzies government placed an order for America's nuclear-capable fighter aircraft, the F-111, to replace its ageing Canberra bombers. It was never a secret at any time within the defence establishment, and even for that matter in the Australian press, that it was essentially an acquisition which was going to be used against Indonesia. Military analyst Andrew Ross. Given that we only had 25 of them, the amount of impact they could have had carrying conventional weapons on any target from Indonesia was infinitesimal. So what really were they meant to be carrying? And by deduction, although I'm not aware that the government ever said it publicly, for obvious reasons, the real purpose was in fact to carry a high-performance bomb, a nuclear weapon. Indeed, in the early 1960s, Australia's military strategists were planning for nuclear war in Southeast Asia. The Army and Australia's defence scientists devised an extraordinary experiment codenamed Operation Blowdown. Its aim? To assess the impact battlefield nuclear weapons would have on jungle warfare. The site designated for the project was the Iron Range region in far north Queensland. They had no actual nuclear weapon, but the scientists considered 50 tonnes of TNT would adequately simulate a small tactical nuclear bomb. Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. This bizarre experiment revealed that a nuclear blast in jungle would create such a tangled mess of vegetation, the movement of troops would be seriously impeded. But the confidential documents behind Operation Blowdown offered a more important revelation. 
The Australian Army in the early 1960s believed that the next war they would face could involve tactical nuclear weapons used by or against an Asian enemy. That belief was given weight when Red China became the first Asian country to join the Select Nuclear Club. For Australians, yes, there was a Soviet threat, or at least a perceived Soviet threat. Yes, there was concern about Indonesia. But at the end of the day, it was the Red China threat that occupied the imagination of Australia and of military planners. And so we see that after the Chinese bomb, there is a renewed interest in nuclear weapons in Australia. And while in the 50s, the focus had been on procuring nuclear weapons from the UK or from the US, now it was a different situation. For the first time, you have discussions of Australia developing its own indigenous nuclear capability, of it building its own bomb. In the summer of 1965, Australia took its first steps towards building the bomb. Prime Minister Menzies asked the Atomic Energy Commission to advise the government on the costs of producing nuclear weapons. In the Commission's top-secret report, Philip Baxter confidently predicted that Australia could manufacture as many as 30 tactical nuclear weapons a year. As the report was delivered, Australian troops were fighting in the jungles of Vietnam and its nearest neighbour, Indonesia, was boasting that it would soon have the bomb. Indonesia will fight for her freedom to the death, and if necessary, with atom bombs. So said President Sukarno in his Independence Day speech on August the 17th. With the retirement of Prime Minister Menzies in January 1966, the nuclear weapons issue passed to a new Prime Minister, Harold Holt. Holt immediately backed far-reaching changes to the Atomic Energy Commission's research program. From now on, its scientists would attempt to make Australia as self-sufficient as possible in every aspect of the nuclear fuel cycle and avoid international scrutiny and restrictions on defence-related research. Holt also supported a top-secret uranium enrichment program, which according to Baxter, could deliver weapons-grade nuclear material. But the only public hint of Holt's thinking was a controversial decision to limit exports of uranium. Mining companies would now have to stockpile half their reserves for future Australian needs. Its intended use is dramatically revealed in a document secreted away in the archives since May 1967. The document's author is Philip Baxter. Baxter urges the Minister overseeing atomic matters to prevent the sale of 5,000 tonnes of uranium to Britain. The reason? To ensure Australia had enough uranium to manufacture a limited number of atomic bombs. Baxter also promotes using the uranium to power a civil reactor, which would create the plutonium needed for the weapons. In this document, Baxter appears to be gently reminding the minister that perhaps the best way to achieve their ends is to focus 
not on nuclear facilities for solely military purposes, but instead to go down the path of building a nuclear power plant that on the surface would be a plant whose purpose was to provide electricity. But that station provides you with the stuff for making bombs. The Australian Prime Minister, Mr. Harold Hulls, is missing. At 12 o'clock today, he went for a swim on the ocean side of Port Sea Beach. Following Prime Minister Holt's disappearance while swimming in late 1967, the push for an Australian bomb gained even greater impetus. Holt was succeeded by outspoken nuclear advocate John Gorton. On the very day Gorton was sworn in, Britain announced the withdrawal of all its forces from Asia. Three months later, the United States announced a de-escalation of the bombing of North Vietnam. The resolve of both Australia's major allies to fight communist expansion in Southeast Asia had clearly weakened. Australia, it seemed, would soon be standing alone in an increasingly dangerous region. That started generating people thinking, even actually before the formal announcements there were people in defence thinking, well, what do we do if, if our major allies on both sides withdraw? Suddenly Gorton looked around and wondered if Australia was going to be on its own. He wondered whether it was really worth it to be sending Australian boys to die in Southeast Asia for someone else's wars. And that as he looked out, he had a different concept. Rather than forward defense, which was the strategic concept that had dominated Australian military planning for decades, he offered a different model. It might be called the Gorton model. Withdraw from the region, build a fortress Australia, depend on nuclear weapons, because you can't depend on allies. Coming up in episode five of Atomic Dreaming. And it left me with the idea at the time that what on earth would you want a nuclear power station in Jarvis Bay of all places, which is a long way away from any population center. And the only conclusion I could come to was that you wanted it for nuclear material, possibly for nuclear weapons. The only way in which we can protect ourselves, I believe, is by having not machine guns and rifles, but the most sophisticated scientific weapons that we can devise. And I put nuclear weapons in that too, and anything else which will enable one man to hold off a hundred. Atomic Dreamland is produced by Blackbottle Films with the kind assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. To explore our other investigative podcast series, visit blackbottlefilms.com.au.